3. The Biblical Pattern versus Spiritual Immaturity How, then, are we to rectify this? How do we best get this fellowship? Well, the best, most congenial, the most efficient and most enjoyable way of having fellowship is at a shared meal. Eating together is the best way to have fellowship. Just on a practical level, it is interesting to observe that it is virtually impossible for anyone to monopolise a conversation at a table and eat a meal at the same time. At a meal, all have opportunity to contribute to the fellowship, the discussion, and all have to shut up at some point while they service their stomachs. A meal, therefore, creates the ideal, the perfect conditions for the natural participation of all in fellowship. Not surprisingly, therefore, a shared meal is the context for one of the most important Christian rituals in the life of the Church, the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, which was originally, as practiced by the early Church, a fellowship meal, that is, a feast. This surely says something about what is really important to the life of the Church from a biblical perspective. The Last Supper, which was a Passover meal and the model for the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, and therefore the first Christian Passover, was not even remotely like the Eucharists or Communions we celebrate in Church today. Neither was the Jewish Passover. The Passover was a shared meal, a fellowship meal. The ritual and the worship and the fellowship were not distinguishable practically. Analytically, we can distinguish the various parts, but to separate them out in practice would have been to wreck the whole event. And all are part of what should characterise our Eucharist services in Church, since the Eucharist is the Christian Passover, or, if you are not Anglican, just substitute Lord's Supper or Communion for the term Eucharist, whatever your church happens to call it. Why did God make this important and oft-repeated ritual a meal? Because, obviously, an essential part of this important ritual is fellowship, and fellowship is best had round the table at a shared meal. There is something extremely practical and well suited to our constitution as human beings in the way that God has structured our worship, or at least what our worship should be. Contrary to long-established opinion, God does not delight in worship that causes the worshipper pain and suffering, whether of a physical or mental character. I personally judge chorus singing a form of mental torture, though this does not mean that it should not be enjoyable to others. And I find hymn and psalm singing just as excruciating as chorus singing. In fact, many choruses are psalms or based on psalms. Again, not because there is anything wrong with singing psalms per se, but because we have stylized such forms of worship into rituals that are almost devoid of meaningful context and therefore fail to inspire any genuine heartfelt response. I speak for myself, though I suspect rather more people feel this way than are prepared to admit it. There... This is only exacerbated by the lack of any aesthetic qualities that I can appreciate. Granted, these things on their own do not constitute the whole of the service, but it is not much better when we come to the other parts. Preaching is virtually devoid of any content, any real explanation of God's word that applies to the reality of life or challenges the idolatry of our culture. Church services have become to me a mirage. They promise so much, but deliver nothing. They are like deserts, without spiritual, cultural, aesthetic or intellectual nourishment or even any real fellowship with other Christians. The result is that I go to the church hopeful and come away vexed and troubled, simply bored at best. And this is not a flippant attitude on my part, rather it is the result of over 35 years of exposure to such torture 
a period in which I have genuinely tried to engage with what goes on in the church. But the older I get, the more difficult this becomes, because the type of praise and worship that prevails in church services is for the most part infantile. What we get in the name of worship is adults behaving like children. Most church praise and worship services would not be out of place in a primary school assembly, which seems to be the general level of maturity at which such worship functions. We are even directed from the front to do the actions that accompany the choruses like little children in a school assembly. And in one sense, this is appropriate because in many churches, the rest of the service, including especially the sermon, often takes place at an equally infantile level. This is the level of praise and worship in most churches today. One chorus I have heard being sung in church services includes the words Bop, bop, shawadi wadi, bop, bop, shawadi wadi. Utter drivel. But it is not merely drivel. It has a seriously debilitating effect upon the life of the church because it trivialises the faith and demeans it. These comments are not directed only at the Anglican Church. They are the result of my experience of virtually the whole spectrum of church life in the UK, traditional and evangelical, including every major Protestant denomination. But God has not instituted singing as what should be at the heart of one of the most important Christian rituals, much less the Christianised rave and heavy rock music that constitutes worship in many modern charismatic church services, or the kind of infantile choruses that are frequently sung in many evangelical churches. Rather, he has put fellowship at the heart of this ritual by making it a meal. Why? Because without this important element of fellowship, our Christian lives are impoverished, and no amount of chorus singing or attempting to create the right mood will ameliorate this deficiency. It is a deficiency that can only be remedied by fellowship.